Hey everyone, our new format has been live spaces on Twitter that later become our Macrovisor podcast. It's been a great format because we have more of an opportunity to engage with our audience and have a brief Q&A session, although this time it was a little bit of a longer Q&A session, which was also great. That being said, this episode talks about the debt ceiling and some of the issues that may come up that aren't really being discussed in the financial media as much, including the impacts on the economy if the government shuts down and what happens after the resolution of the debt ceiling. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining in and taking the time out to listen to us. Um, we're not going to make this too long, and we hope to make it interactive at the end. So please do put up your questions if you want to write them out. Please <clears throat> reply to um, this post or put up your hand once we're done speaking. Thank you. The matter at hand today is really the debt ceiling, and we've been hearing a lot about it in the news. And we want to talk about some of the elements that we haven't been hearing a lot about. We don't need to rehash what everyone's heard about the risks and so forth. We want to talk a little bit more about what prior standoffs have looked like, where this may go, and also what things look like after it's resolved because we believe it will be resolved. There's no, you know, uh, real high potential of a default, whether technical or not in our minds. We think this is really political theater. The debt ceiling, just in case uh, for those of you out there that don't know what it is, it's a self-imposed restriction that the government's put on the total amount of debt that it can issue. And that self-imposed restriction is something that they have to keep increasing. Otherwise, they're not able to continue borrowing. And tax receipts are not sufficient to fund the government, so they do need to spend via deficit, including to pay off the interest on the debt. And so that's why the conversation always comes back to, oh, well, maybe we'll have a default because of the debt ceiling being breached and the Treasury no longer being able to borrow to pay off the interest on the debt to pay our creditors. But the likelihood of that happening is extremely low because it would actually hurt both parties a lot. So what typically happens in the past is if they can't resolve the issues by the time we reach that X date where the Treasury's extraordinary measures run out, then they shut down parts of the government. They furlough employees. They stop paying vendors. They uh, have essential, as they call them, employees come into work without pay. But a good chunk about three quarters of the government, basically, they're told, you don't go to work, you stay home, and uh, the parts of the government that you're operating are essentially closed. And so you have to think about this in, in context, right? If indeed we did head to a point where the government is shut down for any reasonable period of time, let's say three, four or five weeks, that does have an impact on GDP, particularly given that one of the leading drivers of GDP has been non-defense government spending. So you take a big chunk of that out for any you know, period of time, and of course a month is a third of a quarter, that's going to have an impact on that GDP. It's also going to have ripple impacts on the economy. So I think that's something that is worth considering, and that's only something we really have to concern ourselves with if they shut down, if they can't get things resolved before we reach that date. I don't think that the idea of uh, non-payment on the interest of the debt is, is anywhere reasonable or rational. I think they'll exhaust every extraordinary measure they can, including 
even engaging in some constitutional battles over the 14th Amendment before they let that happen and the U.S. see a, a big sovereign debt downgrade. And Aisha, I'd like to bring you in too. I'm curious of your thoughts and particularly here how it may have an impact. I know you've looked at some of the past debt ceiling situations and how it's impacted the market like we saw in 2011. So I just wanted you to weigh in a, a little bit as well with your thoughts on this. Sure. Thank you for that. So just before I move on to what happened with the markets, I also wanted to touch upon what you just said about the GDP growth and the government spending that's pushing up the GDP growth rate, right? So uh, another plausible issue is that this issue gets resolved between, you know, the two parties and obviously the debt ceiling is extended, but it comes at a cost, right? So it comes at a cost of spending and the Biden administration won't be able to spend everything that they've been wanting to spend. They might have to cut back on, you know, uh, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And some of that spending also gets cut from the GDP. So in either scenario, whether there is a shutdown, obviously that's going to be like the worst case scenario, but even in a non-shutdown scenario, if they reach an agreement, it most likely will come at the cost of certain cuts to um, government spending. So that's something to bear in mind. And we're seeing this in certain stocks as well. Um, I believe there's some positioning in stocks where people are reducing their exposure to stocks that have government contracts and that rely heavily on government spending. Now, Taking a look at history, so there have been several reports by, you know, the big banks and various, you know, institutions who've examined the past and seen what's happened. So there were three prior instances that, you know, they sort of held up. One was the 1996, one was the 2011, and one was the 2013 episode. Now, in all three episodes, during the debt ceiling issue, let's say two months prior and two months after, more or less um, the markets traded flat, except for in 2011 when the markets actually started to go down after the debt ceiling issue got resolved. Now, the situation is in 1996 and 2013, there wasn't much of an issue in the market itself in the sense that the macroeconomic environment wasn't terrible. But in 2011, the macroeconomic environment was under pressure. We were just coming out of the GFC. We, you know, the GFC extended 2008. It started, but it extended until 2010, well into 2011. And so what we see from history or from past experiences, the market really went down massively. Um, after I think it went down about 20 points after uh, the debt ceiling issue was resolved. Now, we're not saying that that's what could happen here. Um, however, it is something to bear in mind that when we have a macroeconomic environment, which isn't um, great, and all, all the data is bearish, unfortunately, right now, other than employment data, um, I think it's something to bear in mind that we may not go down 20% as in 2011, but we might see some pressure on the markets after the resolution. 
Yeah, I think that's an important point to consider is just looking back and really it's how bumpy is the ride to that resolution, right? If it gets resolved over this weekend, I think the markets will be happy. I think next week they would probably see a decent bid because you're taking one negative event volatility catalyst out of the, out of the way. On the other side of it, if it drags on, the longer it drags on, the closer we get to X date, markets tend to myopically focus on what's directly ahead. So they've been able to kind of ignore this for a while. You did see yesterday when uh, McCarthy was saying we're hoping to get something done and you know we're making progress and maybe this Sunday that the markets did get a pretty good bid off of that. So they are looking at any kind of debt ceiling resolution as a positive. And I think the bigger concern for you know how turbulent things get is how long does this drag on? Because if we get a week out, from the X date or even start to move into the X date and have a shutdown, that's where these risks really start to build. Now, we also have a market that's pretty hedged into this. There's a whole lot of open interest in VIX calls and in SPX puts. There's also a significant amount of S&P 500 futures short. Now, these are by players that are managing their long books. They're not just shorting into oblivion or betting on disaster. They're actually trying to mitigate risk by putting on these positions and basically being long downside of the S&P or long upside and volatility. And that's a way that you could potentially manage your risk. And some of these uh, hedges could perform pretty well if there is some sort of um, protracted negotiation process or government shutdown. So the other side of that is, though, that when you have that much hedging in place, it's a lot less likely you're going to have disorderly downside, right? You're going to have some level of protection because the people that have leveraged long positions on, they have insurance policies that should they pay, they don't necessarily get called out of those leveraged long positions by a margin clerk. So that helps to buoy things just a little bit going into next week and the week after. I think it's important to also remember, though, the other side of this is we are getting through OPEX. This is OPEX week. We've got, I think, over two trillion of notional rolling off on Friday. And we are done with the part of the sort of option cycle where we get that delta decay and theta decay bid from Vanna and Charm respectively. And so that does create a little bit less of a passive bid. So it's going to be interesting, right? We have everyone well insured. That's good. That that prevents the sort of elevator shaft scenario from being too likely. But we also have the lack of that passive bid, which means that if we do get some real volatility, it can certainly uh, build on itself. But the other thing that's really important to remember about this debt ceiling is not just sort of what every media story has been focused on, the idea of a technical default, which again, Aisha and I think is extremely unlikely. It's the idea that once we push past the debt ceiling, and it is in all likelihood inevitably resolved, that we have over a trillion dollars of debt issuance to do through the Treasury. And so you have to kind of contextualize things a bit, right? So starting this year, the Treasury began to use their extraordinary measures, which basically means draining the funds they have available to fund everyday government obligations, paying paychecks, contributing to pension plans, paying bills, leases for buildings, interest on debt. They've been doing that, and they've drained the Treasury general account to below $100 billion. And so that's not been an addition of liquidity into the system as much as it's been the lack of removal. 
And this is an important clarification because this is what makes the next point so important, right? The Treasury is paying bills with their Treasury general account. So that will add to reserves on a very short-term basis. But then once the bills are paid, you have other obligations. So it's not going to stay in your account. It's not going to build bank reserves for very long. Now, that's a lot different than something like QE, where it is literally designed to just build bank reserves and add liquidity to the system. But on the other side of this, when you have what is likely to be about, if not over, a trillion of issuance to be done by the end of the third quarter, and those are calculations based on what Bloomberg is seeing, that ends up being about $250 billion of issuance every month, assuming the debt ceiling is resolved in early June. If it's not, then that issuance only grows, right? Because let's say the government is, is uh, just as a scenario, not saying this is the likely scenario, but let's just say theoretically, the government shut down for a month, they don't open till July, and that's when the debt issuance starts. Then you're looking at about $333 billion of debt issuance a month. So the longer that this goes on, the more that that sort of distant sucking sound of liquidity getting pulled out of the system grows. And that amplifies the effects of QT, doesn't it, Aisha? Yeah, so let me just get this right. So what you're trying to say is that when these bonds are going to be issued by the Treasury, basically it's sucking the liquidity out of the system, right? That That's what's happening. Yeah, it's going to be pulling more money out of bank reserves, particularly because a lot of this is going to be issuance in the form of bills. Correct. So people are going to be buying these bonds, whether it's people or the banks, they're going to be buying these bonds. And therefore, the money transfers from the banks or from the market or from the people to the Treasury. Now, do we have any sense of how much this is um, how much of this will be used for paying bills or, you know, paying the interest and what exactly this will be used for? So I'm, I'm looking at it as about half of it's going to the Treasury general account for paying down bills and, and uh, other liabilities. And then I believe close to the other half is paying down interest on this debt because they, those interest expenses have risen pretty significantly. Um, and unfortunately, the Treasury was not on top of, let's say, refinancing our debt into longer duration when rates were zero. And so now we have a lot more of that debt coming due at a time where rates have risen significantly. And unfortunately, that combined with this very, very late, if not end cycle, fiscal spend impulse on the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act has really pulled forward the debt ceiling and amplified the amount of issuance necessary as well. So now let, let's go back a little bit to what you said earlier. I think you did mention this, that, you know, social security payments and all of that, right? So my understanding is if this debt issue does not get resolved and the government shuts down, obviously nothing is going to get paid out. And some of the more important things that are not going to get paid out is um, social security and Medicare um, and even defense spending, education spending, whatever you you know say, like the basic federal level spending is not going to happen, which includes the basic stuff like social security and Medicare. And my understanding is obviously the debt repayment and the interest repayment takes precedence over this kind of spending because that's basically constitutional you have to spend that i mean you have you cannot default on the debt right so in a situation where they issue say 1.2 trillion and you say most of this or a large part of this is going to pay the interest right 
So does that, do we have any sense as to whether that still means that, you know, some of the Medicare doesn't get paid, some of the Social Security doesn't get paid? Let's not discuss, let's say, optional spending like defense, because those are not, I know they're politically important, but those are not human <laughs> those are not of human importance, but Social Security and Medicare are. So do we have any sense as to whether these things will be impacted, even if there's a resolution? So really, all of this comes down to the priorities of the government and how they decide to spend what money they may have. During any kind of constrained balance at the Treasury, the first thing they typically do is to avoid you know, a technical default is to shut down all non-essential parts of the government, but also tell everyone, including vendors, contractors, and subcontractors, you're not going to get paid for a bit. You will get paid, but not for a bit, and we're not going to pay any kind of interest or late fees. So you just got to think just, just for a second about the social impacts of that, because people don't get a pause button on their credit card or on their lease or their grocery bills or any of that kind of stuff, and a lot of these folks are living paycheck to paycheck. So the last time we had an extended shutdown, it actually did have a pretty big human element uh, to it. The effect on government employees was, you know, some people were looking at losing their places or being evicted. Um, there weren't, you know, some landlords were much more understanding about it, knowing the government's going to eventually pay again, but others were not so much. And then others, you know, had uh, credit card interest compounding that whole time. And they, you know, were falling behind on important bills and so on and so forth. So I would say that even with the very kind of top level of how this might look, which is that the first impulse of the government is just kind of shut down about 75, 80% of it. Um, there's still a big human impact for the long, and the longer it goes on, the more places that have a high concentration of government employees see that impact amplified. When we start talking about these other programs like Social Security and, and Medicare, uh, those are supposed to be funded, and the government tends to use them as a bit of a piggy bank to borrow against. So I think that during a shutdown, they you know, it really depends on the administration. It wouldn't be politically popular to for this uh, party to do that, you know, to, to, to renege on those payments. But it is something they might do to avoid what you just discussed, which is the technical default of not paying the interest on the debt as it's due during that window of time. Now, once we get out of the debt ceiling situation and we come to some kind of what I feel and you feel is an inevitable resolution here, I think that that spending is going to continue to go on. They are in many ways obligated to continue cutting those checks. And if they didn't, the social impact would be alarmingly bad. There's there's so much reliance, particularly on older generations on Social Security and Medicare, that if they were not getting paid out, you would see immediate impacts in the economy, um, you know, in landlords, in uh, places that do medical care and so forth. They, there would be immediate significant impacts there, in my opinion. I think the big thing for us to really watch for as market participants is just how much of a removal of liquidity this portends to over a four plus month period. And combining that with the fact that US banks are net sellers of US sovereign right now, uh, Japan has pulled back quite a bit because of currency hedging costs. In fact, some of their largest insurers, who are some of our biggest foreign buyers, have come out recently and said, look, look, it's better for them to actually buy JGBs because when you factor all the costs, otherwise they're not yielding as much from U.S. government debt. I know that sounds crazy, but you look at the currency hedging costs and that's what the math comes out to. And then, of course, China and Saudi aren't big buyers of U.S. sovereign. Uh, and so the Fed used to be the largest domestic buyer. They've stepped back. They're letting this stuff mature off their balance sheet and they've 
done so in the amount of up to $65 billion a month. So that gives you a scale as to how big $250 billion a month of new issuance is. That's the, I believe, largest amount of issuance in such a short period of time that we've seen. So that is certainly likely to amplify some of the volatility in the Treasury market. We've seen the move a little bit subdued, and I would say that based on the new volatility regime that we've seen in that volatility measure of Treasury markets. That is to say, you know, in historical terms, the move's very elevated. But if you look at all of the dynamics playing out in the Treasury market and just U.S. one-year uh, credit default swaps just blowing out, I mean, this, these, they're at higher levels than we've ever seen. So there's a lot of concern out there, but it's not necessarily being seen in the equity market or directly in the bond market unless you look at the maturities that are impacted by this sort of X date or those four weeks after when the Treasury expects to run out of money. And I think that that's a it's a pretty interesting dynamic. But again, it's offered opportunities. Right. So maybe we could talk a little bit about some of those opportunities that we've seen because of some of the stretch positioning that's occurred in part because of this dynamic. As we've all heard, the dollar was supposed to die immediately in late March. Right. There was this notion that the, that the dollar hegemony was over, that, you know, China and, and Kenya and uh, Russia did a deal. And therefore, you know, that's the end of the U.S. dollar as we know it. And we saw a lot of very stretched positioning happening as a result of that. And also because of, you know, quite frankly, the diminished confidence of going into this debt ceiling situation and, you know, the U.S. becoming a bit of a laughing stock again, and deservedly so. This debt ceiling thing is a artificial construct. There's very few other countries in the rest of the world that do this nonsense, and uh, it does diminish confidence. But it doesn't mean the dollar's role as a global reserve currency is ending here, does it? It does not. So I'm not going to be hiding rubles under my mattress anytime soon, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, but speaking of being silly and nonsense, let's shall we talk a little bit about the coin? I, I see some people still mention the coin here, and uh, what's your understanding of this? So apparently, it's this idea that the uh, mint can create a one trillion dollar platinum coin, and that somehow by ascribing that coin that value, it can be used to pay down a chunk of the debt to buy enough time. I mean, at this at this rate, that would buy us what three four months. Like, I don't see really how that would even be practical. I think it would be challenged in court. I think it would set a very stupid precedent. Um, but yes, the coin idea is still being discussed, and I, I think it's. Um, Quite frankly, just as nonsensical as concepts like the great silver squeeze that's going to send silver to $1,000 an ounce because of all these banks conspiring to short silver, which, by the way, they're not. But, yeah, it's that same sort of tinfoil stuff. And, and I just I feel like we're focusing on the wrong things. We should be asking ourselves, why does the government constantly run into the self-imposed ceiling? Why are they spending so much money? Why can't they have a reasonable budget? Why can't there be some sort of fiscal sanity uh, rather than talking about trillion dollar coins? But what do you think of the coin? No, I'm, uh, it, it baffles me actually. And it baffles me that some people actually um, use I think that they're not serious when they put these out as headlines. I think they are just joking around. But I think it's nice clickbait for people who are writing articles. So I guess that's why, you know, people use the coin argument from time to time. Um, so I think I, I don't have very much more to add other than the fact that, you know, we need to be a little bit cautious uh, about how all of this gets resolved. I think the liquidity issue is a big deal. Um, whether it gets resolved today, tomorrow, day after, 
whenever, whenever the, and we know it will be resolved, right? It has to be resolved. But then there are two things that we need to keep an eye on. One obviously is the GDP um, growth rate because of the expenditure. And the second is the liquidity coming out of the system. And we've seen this very clearly, right? So more liquidity in the system, stock market goes up, less liquidity in the system, eventually the stock market starts to go down. So let's just be very mindful of that. So uh, before you know, we open it up to questions, do you have anything else that you wanted to add? Yeah, I just think that going back to the dollar, I think positioning got really stretched. People were extremely short the dollar. There was this idea that it was going to break an uptrend that it's been in for about 12 years now. I felt that was a little bit silly. We were reaching some pretty good levels of technical support. I put out something on Twitter and I put more detail out to some of the folks that we help over at Macrovisor, but basically saying I think the dollar wants to bottom. And we've seen some of that. And of course, that's not a good sign for gold, particularly when we see real rates on the rise. And look, if you're looking forward and you see about a trillion plus of issuance happening, you've got to be a little bit skeptical of bond prices and rates where they are. So the idea that rates rise a bit here after the 30-year bond and 10-year bond were in this great period of consolidation, you know, it makes sense to see prices weaken and rates firm up there. So the idea really is people got a little too bearish of the dollar a little too certain of rates heading lower. Uh, that, of course, led to a different type of elongated positioning in gold and silver. Those trades got really crowded. And that's an area, look, I mean, I've been trading precious metals for a pretty long time, about, um, geez, about 18 years. And one thing that I can tell you is every time you're nearing the interim top, might not be the top for the cycle, but at least the interim top, you get everyone coming out saying it's the end of the dollar, that gold's going to five or $10,000 an ounce, that all the conspiracy theories about banks shorting gold and silver start you know, taking center stage. And we see a lot of really, really concentrated positioning in the ETFs, in the miners, in the futures. And, and that's the kind of environment that we got to recently. In fact, one day we had the most call buying, the most premiums sought, and these were people crossing the spread to get aggressively long gold via calls that we had ever seen. So when you see stuff like that, when people are panicking into an asset and the positioning is getting really stretched and a lot of the longs have their, you know, uh, average entry price at 2000 bucks or up, you know, it's important to be careful. That's that's what I would say, because, look, gold's price right now is about where it was in 2011. That's right. In the last 12 years, with all the money printing, with all the, you know, or at least the creation of credit to add to bank reserves, all the inflation we've seen over the last two years, gold has still not made a meaningful new high. So it's not really acted as a hedge against inflation. And I think the reason it's gotten a bit of late is because it's been acting as an uncertainty hedge, which it does well. But when everyone's so certain about what the uncertainty is going to bring, that's when it starts to get a bit crowded. And that's where I became just a little bit skeptical of gold. And I think that's something to take into consideration because, you know, obviously, if we had some kind of technical default, which we're both saying is very, very unlikely, that would be very bullish for gold. But in the absence of that, in the absence of some kind of disorderly catalyst for gold further, the path of least resistance is lower. And it's a very crowded trade. When you look at CTAs as well, they're extremely long of this. And in a down tape, they have something like uh, two or three billion worth of futures to sell. 
And that's pretty significant because gold's not a very big market when you look at the paper side of it. So anyway, just some thoughts I wanted to share when people get so certain, like with these credit default swaps, if I had access to shorting U.S. credit default swaps here, I probably would because I don't think it's the end of the world. I don't think the U.S. is going to default on their debt. and I'd, I'd be fine taking the other side of that trade. Good stuff. So shall we open it up to questions? Yeah, folks, if you have questions out there, please don't hesitate to request to speak. And we're more than happy to hear from you. We'll take some questions. And for those who may have joined later on, just know that this is being recorded. It will be available later on Spaces. It will also go out to all the major podcast outlets. You can just search for the word Macrovisor on Apple, Amazon, Google, any of your favorite podcast places and find this published within the next couple of days. And we want to thank you all for tuning in. If you like this type of macro content, you can find more for free and with a paid subscription at macrovisor.com. But there are no silly questions. There's no judgment. We just want to help people here. So if you have any questions about anything that we've talked about or just about the general macro environment, please don't hesitate to request to speak. People are very quiet today. Well, maybe that means we answered all their questions in advance. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but we're happy to uh, chat about anything macro. I mean... Okay, we've got someone here. Okay, great. <laughs> Saida, and I apologize if I butchered your name there. What's going on? What what, what question do you have yes, for us? So, sorry, maybe I was late to the um, discussion. Uh, but uh, what are the implications? How how much um, spending cuts or tax uh, rise is uh, the possible agreement uh, about? And the drain of liquidity, uh, where they need to issue debt, what would be the possible impact on 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 equities? Thanks. Sure. So it sounds like the first question you had there is about um, any spending cuts. So we haven't really heard whether or not there's going to be any spending cuts. Right now, that is something that the uh, House is adamant about. You know, Speaker McCarthy has said repeatedly that he does want to uh, be able to see some some cuts in spending and the administration said they just want to pass a boost to the debt ceiling without any changes in the budget. But it does sound like in order to reconcile the differences between these two parties, there might be some kind of compromise. So we're going to be waiting to hear what we uh, hear from that. But for now, there's really no clarity as to whether or not there will be cuts. In terms of the liquidity impact on the equity market, I think it's going to look more like QT is actually doing QT. Because if you think about it, we've kind of been in a state of QT stasis since October of last year. We had the Bank of Japan adding liquidity to markets, the People's Bank of China adding liquidity to the markets. Um, Yellen was spending very aggressively out of TGA, and it was actually boosting bank reserves. And so from that point all the way really through the present, there's been some offsets to quantitative tightening from the Fed. We can see the People's Bank of China and the Bank of Japan are continuing to add liquidity to their respective markets, which does leak into other global financial markets, including U.S. equities, since they're some of the most attractive assets in the world. But when you start adding a quarter trillion of debt issuance from the Treasury, uh, which is likely to start pretty well as almost immediately after the debt ceiling issue is resolved, that is likely to add to some downward pressure in 
equities, particularly longer duration stocks that are more rate sensitive, tech, growth, biotech, things like that are likely to see greater pressure from that. It's also likely to add a bit to the volatility in treasury markets, which sometimes does leak into the volatility of equity markets. So it could make it a bit of a bumpier ride. So I think it is worth paying attention to, particularly because that resolution will probably come sometime around quarterly OPEX, which also tends to be a pretty big driver of volatility in equity markets. So overall, I'd say it's an amplification of the QT we haven't really been experiencing for the past six, seven months. Does that help? Uh, yeah, it helps a lot. And the second question, so if, if this information was known by market participants, I mean, what game are they playing? They've been playing for, for the last maybe weeks or months. Um pumping basically the market knowing that a lot of that has to be issued and yields will probably will have to reprice a dollar perhaps going up thanks so my two cents on that is that you have a very well hedged market into this You've got people that are very long VIX calls, very long S&P puts, very short S&P futures. Um, and, so, and there's also a pretty good amount of positioning on either side of the treasury market. But certainly uh, a lot of if we're just looking at short positioning, there's a lot of short positioning there on a gross basis. But I would say that that's part of it. The other part of it is just that the equity market tends to be very myopic. I know people like to say it's forward looking uh, for stuff like this. If we look at past episodes of the debt ceiling situation, it's typically not until we get like a week or two out and there doesn't seem to be much progress that participants get more nervous. So I'd say it's both, you know, folks having been around the rodeo and hedging into it and others just not really looking at it as a meaningful risk yet. Aisha, what do you think? Yes, I think we've had this scare a few times uh, by now, right? So we had something like this happen in uh, November, December, if I'm not mistaken. And and so I think some people are sort of ignoring the risk a little bit. Um, and the others probably, as Mayhem said, they're kind of, you know, hedged into the situation. But have we seen this episode before where... The market, because when you say is, is the, the market is hedged, is properly hedged, is it because of this net short? Uh, uh, because what, what I've read is that there are there's a record number of net short futures on the indexes, but there are uh, record high levels in, in, in long equities. So uh, net net is not, uh, it's probably hedged, but but or neutral, let's say. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, that it's it's better hedged. It's not as if, all, I mean, market participants are not going to 100% hedge their portfolios or they're not going to have any upside, right? So they'll hedge a portion of their positioning, typically what is leveraged long outside of the 100% of their cash. So that just helps to reduce the potential of disorderly downside. But Aisha, you were saying that um, in some of these prior events, we saw weakness going into the X date and then sometimes a bit after that, as after the resolution as well, but often into it. Yeah. Yes, so going into it, so the market dips a little and then it trades flat, so sideways chop. Now, I think if you look at the S&P for the last couple of weeks, in fact, uh, what you'll see is we have been sort of chopping within a range, right? So it's not like we've had um, massive upside, massive downside. So I think that's the range that we are chopping within um, 
which is reminiscent of prior episodes. What unfortunately is not a good sign is that if we are looking at um, this as a parallel to 2011, so 2011, what happened in 2011, then equities are set to go down. So at that time, it went down about 20%. Um, if people or market participants are better hedged this time around, perhaps we see a much lower situation, as in we don't go down 20%, maybe we go down 5%, 6%. But I still think, given the fact that liquidity will be coming out of the system, we will see a decline in the market. Now, whether it's going to be a sharp decline or a sudden decline, I don't know. I think it will be a more protracted decline because as the liquidity gradually comes out of the market, I think we start to go lower. Um, and this also lines up with a lot of the macro data, unfortunately. And it also lines up with the fact that, you know, the Fed, even if they pause, they'll be holding rates here. And it also lines up with earnings. Uh, although we've had better than expected earnings this time around, um, the, the you know projection is that we still have a decline in earnings quarter on quarter. Thank you. You're welcome. I see a couple more people requested, so give me a moment here. Faisy, thank you so much for listening. What question do you have for us? Uh, yeah, hi. I mean, my question is similar, but I'll just come back with a little bit of perspective of what I'm thinking. Uh, you know, since SVB in March, we've had, uh, you know, we had a considerable decline of S&P to 3,800. And since then, the market's been on a tear. Every dip has been bought under the assumption that the Fed put is still alive. Earnings have come out okay. Um, we've seen that as soon as the market participants got nervous, you know, when Facebook and Apple's earnings came out and Microsoft's earnings came out, they came out better than expected because of lowered estimates. But assuming that market participants or larger institutions have all the research, they're forward-looking, they see, you know, exactly what's happening, uh, debt ceiling scare, uh, not believing that will happen, and that's a decision they take when they do buy the dip. But going forward, I mean, looking at performance year to date, S&P is, I mean, uh, it's up seven, eight, eight percent. Like Nasdaq, tech is up twenty six plus percent as as of we're speaking. And you know what doesn't make sense is that if they see the liquidity decline, if they see that the dollar is going to, you know, you can you can raise bills, but you're in the end if you're raising a trillion dollars, it's you'll have to pay more to borrow that kind of money. And everyone can see that, but. What is with this whole tear up? Is this like the way institutions create traps to lure in retail investors because it's gone pretty far? Or is they, do they really believe that because the recession is incoming no matter what? And in also your thoughts on that, I've heard your videos and you've also said that, you know, we do expect weakening, that the Fed put is alive. Consumers are still spending what they're spending. What is they're buying at higher prices, but they're buying less. So nominal terms, sales, etc., do come out the same way. So where is the disconnect here? Is this like just like 
week to week where the markets are or is this short covering from those massive shorts? I mean, where is the disconnect here if you say that markets look forward three to six months? Are they just offloading their longs? In, in the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, most funds are long tech. It's just a consensus trade. So, you know, when this happens, what, you know, if the, if the, even if tech has gone up that much, when you do need to sell, what do you sell first? Ones that you have a lot of profit on? Wouldn't Couldn't that cascade into a massive dip more on the Qs rather than the S&P or anything else? Uh, or in the Russell for that matter? I mean, something that's not that high, highly elevated in terms of valuations. And the second part is like algos have their models and they do plug in the rate, a probability weighted uh, rate. And, you know, don't the algos respond to these um, changes in, in, in the dollar that's breaking out right now? And, uh, you know, even uh, interest rates, uh, 10 year yields are going up. I'm just trying to reconcile this. It's just not something that makes sense to me. It's been a very painful ride, but in the end of the day, what are your thoughts on, you know, isn't the market efficient or are these traps? Or what, what are your thoughts on how this is, game is played? Sorry for sure, the long-winded I, question. No, I think it's it's a, there's a lot of great thoughts in there and I appreciate you, uh, you sharing what you were talking about. And, uh, you know, I think you have an inquisitive mind. You've raised a lot of interesting points. The one statistic I would look at just to start with is that 15 stocks account for about 97% of year-to-date upside. And there's a sort of mega cap factor chase going on where people are just moving up and up and up in the market cap size of the stocks that they're buying as a flight to safety. We also see underneath the surface since February a bit of a rotation out of high beta into lower volatility stocks, which is a typical sort of end cycle uh, flight to safety. And as you mentioned, you know, money managers, they have to deploy cash. They might be able to have 5 or 10% on the sidelines, but often they have to have most of their cash deployed, which means that in a situation where they want to become more defensive, they are going to start to to go into stocks that they feel like are going to be more resilient. So, you know, what has been a area that's been safer in some more difficult markets has been mega cap tech, you know, even though uh, they're not necessarily safe stocks, they're trading at valuations that suggest growth. And yet we're not seeing that growth. So you could certainly argue that Apple trading near all time highs or Microsoft not too far from all time highs is, is, is a bit um, confusing unless we add in the element of this is where money is heading, not necessarily because of valuations or perceiving a discount or future growth, but just as a flight to safety. And if you have money leaving the smaller stocks and getting put to work in these larger stocks, it does amplify some of the impacts that you see in these market capitalization weighted indices, right? The S&P is 21%, just five stocks. The NASDAQ's over 40%, those same five mega cap stocks. And so the impact that they have on uh, moving the market is pretty significant. In terms of how forward-looking the market is, I think that's a very interesting question because the time period that people tend to hold positions has shortened so significantly over the 
last several years. Not just retail traders and investors, but institutions are churning things a lot more as well. In fact, we've gotten to a point now where the majority of market opinions are being expressed in options rather than in shares or futures or uh, ETFs. And so when you're expressing your opinion with options, you know, you have to fight against time. So one of the ways that they make sure that they don't have much time to trade these options around on purpose is by trading these zero DTEs. And think about it. The cost of having margin in this market has gone up significantly. A lot of people are paying, you know, 8, 10, 12 percent on margin. Well, how do you work around that margin? You have positions that give you leverage that you don't carry into overnight. Now, that may be futures, but a lot of people have been taking zero DTE options in the S&P. And this is now at a point where the amount of notional value that trades hands every day, 70 percent of it is traded through options. And about 50 percent of that options volume, whether we look at shares, ETFs, or indices, is traded with an expiration of six and a half hours or less. So is it really possible for the markets to be forward-looking when the majority of notional trading hands is in options where people are, you know, half the time trading for that day? and usually not holding for more than a few minutes or hours. And you talked about algos. I mean, 96% of that options trading is attributed to algorithmic trading. So it is, it's a very different type of market environment. I know that some folks have thought that volatility seems like it's being manipulated. I would actually argue it's not being manipulated. It is being sold. But it's also when you have the majority of options ex um, interest expressing opinion within like the same day to the next three days, by a lot, that's like 70% right there from like zero day to one day to two day to three day on trading days. That means that most people are expressing their opinion near to the money, right? And uh, pretty close to expiration, which has the impact of compressing vol. And it does, it, it does so a bit in realized terms as well. So it has been more of a sideways chop. I would say we did have the, the Silicon Valley Bank debacle, and that definitely put um, a risk off moment into the market. The Fed intervened in a way that helped to solve some of the liquidity concerns. That brought some confidence back into equities. But if you zoom out, just looking at the last year, we've been, in essence, chopping in a sideways range, right? And really most, most uh, pronounced within the last about month, month and a half. But I would say that that's the bigger picture is we really haven't had a bullish or bearish market for the last year. It's just basically been chopping. And we did have that pretty big low in October, but shorts got way off sides. They were very, very aggressively positioned, particularly into that CPI day. And that's been the bottom ever since. And I think that there was a lot of short covering off that bottom all the way through, say, November, December, that helped the market kind of find its legs. But from there, I think you've got more people that are chasing momentum. We've seen CTAs, and these are those momentum traders and hedge funds that are using models to um, try to basically ride momentum. And they've been some of the longs that have been helping to push the market higher. And, you know, so you combine that with a lot of the zero DTE options positioning, which is institutional selling of put premium and buying of call premium almost every day, which you basically have the people betting against the market, funding the market going higher. So that's part of the, the machine that's been rotating. But you also do have momentum chasers that are definitely buying into every attempt for the market to break out of this range, which is around 4,200 on the S&P 500 index, right? That's sort of like the ceiling of enormous options open interest. Every time we get up there, we see some reflexive selling. So I'd say that a lot more of it is, is you know, you've got 
participants that just are not very concerned about the macro or the fundamentals. They're just concerned about the trade and whether that trade's playing out in the same day or the same week or the same month more than looking out to the future. Now, if you look at the flows from large institutional money managers, they're net sellers and they have been for this whole year. So are they handing the bag to retail? Maybe. I mean, you definitely have folks that were pretty underwater in their positions last year and are happy to see any kind of reprieve and are starting to raise some cash in this. You also have folks that are you know, of retirement age and they're rotating out of equity exposure into fixed income because this is the first time in over a decade that they've had an opportunity to you know, start to rotate out. But as long as we have some of these flows that are happening on a daily basis, whether it's from the momentum chasing funds or some of the um, you know, zero DTE trading that accounts for the majority of volume we're seeing, I think that we're kind of in this mode where we have lower realized volatility and we have this sort of path of chopping in a range. So what breaks that momentum then? Like, what is the moment that the, the fundamentals come into play? I mean, if you look at the dollar or the yields, they've, they've gone up quite a bit. They haven't broken out, but they're close to. And if they do, when, when is that moment? When, when, like, I understand that when institution sells, uh, they sell when they are like something like a stop loss. You know, if it comes below this, just go ahead and sell. So weakness will exacerbate weakness and strength will exacerbate strength. But when will that, when do you think that moment comes when investors, actual investors decide, you know, this is not going well, we have to offload or we need to offload. You know, those, those uh, tops that, you know, the blow off tops or if, even if we don't get one of those, you know, what's, what's the defining moment where Powell comes and says, we're not, uh, we're not uh, cutting rates or we're going to pause. He's been saying that every single Fed member has been saying that market disagrees. Someone, somewhere, sometime, something has to tell them that, you know, this is not, is that going to be an inflation print that's slightly higher? Or, you know, where, where do you think is that reverse where everyone says, oh, crap, this is, this needs to, this needs, to, this is a game changer because it's just, that's just the way it's been. Something has to change. Otherwise, we'll be continuously buying the dip uh, or, you know, one severe, one big sell off and then everyone goes back to buying the dip. What do you think that factor would be? And unfortunately, I think the answer to that question is very doom and gloom. But I, I think we need a big enough credit event that sort of drags everything down. And it's not something that I am hoping for, for sure. Because if we see a credit event, we will see the market crash. We will probably see limit down as we've seen before. But I've been smiling all through the time that you and Mayhem have been talking because you're absolutely right. There's a there's a huge disconnect between reality and the market. So your fundamentals are, for me, being a fundamental analyst, it's quite odd to see how, you know, there's such a big disconnect. But then when I look back at, say, the dot-com bubble and times like that, I start to realize that, you know, stuff like this has happened in history. It may not have happened exactly. The, so we're, we're building our own little piece of history right now, right? So for us, it will probably be something different. Now, we've had two big significant credit events in terms of, you know, Silicon Valley. And I think, you know, 
FRC was actually bigger than Silicon Valley. So we've had two big, big credit events, but fortunately those have been resolved in a very orderly manner, I would say. Much better than any of our any of the past credit events, and so the market has just you know shrugged that off and sort of you know marched higher. Now, obviously, as I said, you know we need a credit we don't need a credit event, but if there is a big enough credit event, then the market will crash. But for now, I think there are these pieces that are falling into place, and you're right. People don't believe the Fed because, you know, he blinked once in 2019 um, or 2018, 2019. And so they think that he's going to blink again. Um, This time, unfortunately, I don't think he is going to blink that easily because as we've seen, the credit events that have happened have been, you know, managed. And we're just going to go, go along with this. And I think as far as portfolio managers are concerned, Um, they need to show monthly and quarterly performance, right? So they always kind of, many of the portfolio managers, I I would say most actually, um, need to sort of manage their books on a quarterly basis. And and therefore for them to be able to show that return, um, they're hiding out in the bigger stocks. Now, what makes them sell those bigger stocks? I don't think much will, because I think if we do have that kind of a credit event, people will hide out in Apple even more. Because Apple is now, I, I think it's the new gold, right? So anybody, even Buffett bought more Apple this quarter. So it's just one of those things. So I don't think looking at the big tech is our best gauge of this market. But I was looking at a lot of stocks other than the big tech today, looking out for ideas. And honestly, most of what I saw was either they're on an ugly downtrend or they're extremely overvalued. So there's really nothing, you know, substantial to buy right now other than those few that are marching higher and some of the short squeezes. So this market is actually really ugly underneath the surface. Yeah, so basically, sorry, my last, I won't speak after this, but essentially you're saying even the fact that they reconciled the valuations are going to stay elevated. Um, In case the worst situation I mean, it's not going to make too much of a difference. The stocks will reprice, but we're not going to have like crap. I mean, two, three percent down days. We're going to reprice if like, for example, I think an outlier could be inflation starts going back up. But essentially, everyone's expecting the next credit event. And because of that, they're flocking to, to big tech. And if there's no credit event, we're probably going to see some correction but not substantial so i think we will grind down gradually so what what what's going to happen now is look we're going to have two more months of you know inflation data coming down because of the base effects but then what's happening with inflation coming down is that you're actually you actually are destroying demand right so excess savings you talked about the consumer spending, right? So the consumer is spending because they had excess savings. Many people had so much money from the stimulus checks that, you know, all of that was still there and it's still sort of, and people were deprived for two, two and a half years from doing the things they wanted to do. So we saw a lot of that spending blow off happen. And gradually what we will start to see is 
um, the excess savings coming down. And we know this even from the fact that people have stopped spending because they are saving more. So they know that their ex- excess savings is coming down. So they have started saving more. So the savings rate has started to go up. All of this basically stops consumption. So your demand is being destroyed. With inflation coming down, your margins are going to be destroyed. We are already seeing this in most of the companies. Margins are coming down. People are looking at beats as if that's it, that's the end of the world. But it's not just about the beats, right? So if you look at it on a quarterly basis, revenues coming down, margins are coming down, EPS is coming down. And all of this eventually will work its way into prices. Now, Will we still have elevated valuations? We might. We might not settle at 15, 16, 14, which is like the long run average, but we might be somewhere around, I think, 18 times, 20 times. And that has to come off a little bit. But it's. I think this is something that Mayhem keeps saying, that if we do start a new bull market from here, it will be one of the most extensive starts of a bull market ever, right? And I don't think that will end very well because what we will see is we will have, as Mayhem keeps reminding us, we will have a very shallow bull market that will go one more leg down once it's over. Thank you for those answers. Appreciate the time. Great questions. And uh, I see we've got Barack out there. Give me one second. And appreciate everyone tuning in. Really do appreciate everyone out there and all the great questions you've had and everything. Hope you all have enjoyed this. If you didn't get to catch the whole thing, it will be recorded and available on Twitter and your favorite podcast services. Barack, what's going on? Thanks for tuning in. What question do you have for us? Hi. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, I love the spaces. I think the divergence in the markets and the fundamentals is uh, very high and it's kind of frustrating because uh, I always hear bad news and bad economic indicators and the markets rallying, right? (laughs) But uh, I I was hoping to ask you, I'm thinking about doing a a specific trade right now. It's it's an investment. the TLT ETF, it's composed of bonds that has that have uh, more than 20 years of life, and right now I think it's very low in the price. Uh, if you look at, at the graph, uh, you can see it's near. Um, I, I I think uh, the lowest value it has ever had like $10 away from it. And what I was thinking is uh, seeing the other uh, recessions, I think, uh, on the dot-com bubble and the 2008 recession, you can see that when the Fed is starting to to get the rate down, the market crashes, and because of the rates going down, the bonds go up, Right. So I, I am thinking about getting long on this uh, long-term ETF that has bonds. And uh, I was hoping to ask you for your, uh, your view about this, this trade. Uh, the Fed, in the next two years, I'm sure it, it will ha- they will have to uh, move the rates down. So uh, 
I'm, I'm thinking also that the market will crash a little bit when they they go down, and I'm hoping to reallocate the money when the market has crashed into indexes and another stock uh, portfolio. You know. So, what's your your uh, views here? Sure, I think that's a, a really interesting question. Um, it. For me, if it was my trade right now, I'm bearish of TLT. And the reason I am is momentum is is in favor of the sellers right now. And we have about a trillion dollars of new uh, debt issuance that's coming up that's likely to put some upward pressure on rates from where they are now. So I think, you know, as the debt ceiling is likely to get resolved within the next month or two, once that happens, then the new, the new issuance starts to kick up. That's likely to pull some liquidity out of the market, including the treasury market. I think based on that, as well as just, you know, it's hard for me to get on the other side of a chart like this. If we look at this chart on a monthly or weekly or even daily basis, it just looks so bearish to me. And it's it's really been one of the biggest, um, you know, shorts in the treasury market. I mean, folks that, that time their shorts on this well probably pulled out almost 50% from uh, peak to trough. And I don't think it's quite over yet. I get what you're saying, though. And, and so what you're really saying is, look, like as we get into a recession, this should do well. So if you think about it from historical perspectives, you know, once you are really in the recession phase of the credit cycle or really approaching it, these are more likely to get a bid. The long end of the yield curve in general is more likely to get a bid, especially if you do have a real meaningful risk off moment. Like you said, maybe there's some disorderly downside in equities that tends to create a flight to safety to this type of stuff. But here's the concern. Timing. And managing a trade like this would be very difficult in the sense of timing because the way that the market may bottom and may reverse and the way that these trades may go down, it's likely that you would have to spend a lot of time managing these trades, watching them day in and day out. So the way I do it is I, I like to keep it kind of simple on what I consider to be swing timeframe trades. So for something like this, I'm likely to want to be short until we retrace back to about 91.67. I think around there, that's the bottom of the 70% value area on a monthly time frame. That's likely to be an area of support. We've kind of kissed it already. And then from there, I would be flat and I would be looking for a change in momentum, a change in direction. And I'd be looking for more signs of you know, a recession in leading economic indicators. I'd be looking for more signs of uh, an earnings recession picking up, basically things that are telling us that stocks aren't going to be very attractive and that people are likely to go to flight to safety. And if that coincided with a, a momentum reversal in TLT and really in the individual bonds, the 20 years and the 30 year bonds are what this thing is comprised of, then I'd be more likely to want to start building a long position in it. But I'll, I'll say this much too. Um, and that is that, you know, right now for me as a fixed income buyer, I'm much more attracted to the short end of the curve. I'm much more attracted to taking minimal duration risk and getting over 5% yield than going out really far. And, you know, if I was buying the actual bonds, I'd be stuck in them for decades. Buying TLT, the risk there is you don't get the option of holding into maturity and getting 100 cents on the dollar. You're essentially just dealing with whatever the market is pricing those 20 and 30 year bonds. So I'm more likely as an investor to just want to buy short dated treasury paper like bills and even some of the notes rather than wanting to actually actually buy an ETF um, and kind of trade the price action on it because I'm looking to, to build income. And the reason I say this is this is the first time in like 13 years 
that you've been even longer than that, actually. It's probably the first time in like 15, 17 years that you've been able to go out to the bills and get these kinds of yields. So I feel like we're really kind of fortunate. We get to build a nice fixed income ladder, but maybe not on the longer dated maturities. I, I'm more focused on the shorter dated ones. And I'm, as a result, a little more price agnostic because they don't tend to move much in price and I'm going to hold them to maturity anyway. Does that help? Yeah, thanks a lot for the answer. Uh, I was also going to ask you, uh, I, I think when the Fed starts to cut rates, they do it reactively, right? But this time is a little different because they are uh, doing, uh, doing it little by little. And, and they are talking about that and everything. So do you think that the, when they start cutting rates, is it going to be... Uh, a selling pressure for the stocks, for the stock market? Is it going to, to trigger something like, uh, uh, I, I don't know, a limit down or something like that? I don't know it's a limit down, but it, it, are, are stocks going to, to start uh, going down? What do you think about that? I think it just it really depends on the context, right? So if the Fed is cutting rates because they've managed to, as they often do during hiking cycles, break something big enough that warrants them trying to turn around the ship that is the Federal Reserve from hiking to cutting, if it's in that context of a negative event, and it's, a, it's one of significant gravity, then I would be concerned about risk asset pricing in, in light of that. you know, Because if they're saying, look, we need to cut rates to reliquify the financial system to make credit cheaper, um, um, and they're not necessarily doing it because they feel like they've accomplished their goals. They're doing it because something bad happened. I would be concerned because typically the market bottoms about 10 months after the first rate cut, going back about 100 years of monetary history. Now, obviously, anything can be different. And one big exception to that rule was COVID, right? Because when the COVID crash happened, the Fed just said, whatever rates are right now, we're cutting them to zero and we're flooding the world with as much money as we possibly can. And other central banks joined them in that endeavor. And so that was really great for risk. But that sort of like very rapid turnabout and the extent to which they eased and pushed liquidity into the financial system was up to that point pretty unprecedented. So when we take out those types of extreme outliers, um, I would say, yes, typically when the Fed starts cutting, it is more of a risk off than risk on event. But it, the context really matters quite a bit. Perfect. Thank you for everything. Um, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank you so much for the question. And uh, if anyone else doesn't have any questions, we're going to start wrapping things up. But want to thank everyone for tuning in. Oh, there is actually another question from the post I'm learning right now. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. So uh, Harris asks, do you think the stock market is pricing in a recession? Not at all. Only for a soft landing. So, <clears throat> right. So let me just give my two cents about this. I think um, it's divided, right? So we've seen a lot of the research that has come out. We've seen, uh, let, let's start with some of the bigger banks. Uh, JP Morgan says no recession. Morgan Stanley says yes, recession. Um, so there's also a disconnect between, you know, the major market participants on whether we get a recession or not. And just to remind everyone, a recession is two quarters of negative growth. Now, what we saw from the GDP print last quarter, and we've discussed this earlier on in the uh, 
spaces is that much of this came from, much of the growth came from government spending. So it will be interesting to see what happens once uh, this debt ceiling issue starts to hit and whether any of that government spending comes down and sort of pulls down the GDP number with it. So whether we do get a recession or not, as in technically whether we go negative or not, um, I do think that we will have a very low level of growth over the next uh, couple of quarters. And this in itself is actually pretty harmful for the economy. So it doesn't necessarily have to, you know, flip into negative, but I think it will be a low, 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 low form of growth, which, you know, if inflation remains sticky, is what people sort of call stagflation, right? So you'll hear a lot of that going around, that we are in a stagflationary environment. From what I understand, we are in a situation where inflation is coming down. As I said, revenues are coming down, margins are coming down. None of this is good for companies. It's not good for consumer spending. If GDP growth is coming down, that's not good for anyone either. So everything combined, I don't think the market is actually pricing in a recession, unfortunately, because if you see where the market is right now, this is not pricing in a recession. I know a lot of people have sort of claimed that the market is or already has priced in a recession in October, but I I don't think this is it. I I don't think that they really have priced in a recession. I think if they were pricing in a recession, we would be much lower right now. And I think once, if we do have a recession in the US, I think stocks are going much, much lower. Um, And in the case of a soft landing versus a hard landing, now, this is always the problem with uh, macro data and macro numbers, okay? So sometimes we see numbers creep very gradually. And then once they start to accelerate, sometimes they accelerate really, really, really fast. And unemployment is famous for going through that. So we have a very, very tight market. We have a very big imbalance in the market, which is sort of correcting now, but it's it's still, it's very tight, right? And we've seen some data come out that says that, you know, unemployment has started to go up in certain areas. We've heard of the layoffs. Now, in terms of the layoffs, we need to remember many of these layoffs are phased layoffs, right? So they're not all happening at once. Um, There are many layoffs that we don't hear about as well. Uh, Some people are given notices of one month, three months, six months, depending on their job function. So we won't see this play out for a while. We've started hearing about layoffs when in December. So let's say six months at the six months mark, which is June, we might start to see an increase in unemployment. But my fear from all of this is once we see that unemployment start to go up, it might go up uncontrollably. It actually might accelerate and we do see a hard landing. And I think that's what most of the proponents of hard landing, that's what they're talking about. But I think some of the more savvy investors, they do believe that we will see a hard landing. However, I don't think the market in general is pricing that in. Ma'am, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think you raised some very good points. And and one of the things I wanted to add into is just the probability of recession from where we are now. When we look at 12 months of leading economic indicators in the negative, 
you know, it's really since 1960, anytime we've seen six or more months of leading economic indicators in the negative that we've seen a recession follow. Similar with what we see with uh, yield curves, once they start to flatten uh, out of inversion and then steepen into positivity, you tend to see a recession. We're in that part where it's beginning to flatten, and that's another big concern. Then just credit tightening, and Powell has spoken to this as well, and the Fed has actually shown some degree of ambivalence about a potential recessionary event, basically saying that if that's what it takes to carry out policy such that it uh, does undermine demand so so that they see inflation get closer to their 2% PCE target, then they're okay with that. They're sanguine of even hiking into a recession, uh, some of their Fed speakers have said. But uh, when we talk about credit tightening, you know, banks are lending less. Uh, People are having trouble. Businesses are having trouble paying down some of these loans. There's a lot of refinancing coming due from the back half of this year over to the next several years. And so that, that tightening of credit conditions is uh, a bit of a concern because what it's doing over time is it's actually reducing demand in the economy. A lot of the money in this economy that flows through that creates demand is from debt. Right. So when you see less of that circulating and when it is available, it's at an appreciably higher cost of capital that definitely has the impact of slowing down economic growth. So going back in time, when we look at other periods of time, when lending conditions, when credit has tightened this much, there's always been a recession that's followed. Right. So there are a number of different themes such and the earnings recession, even if it's not quite as bad as expected yet, it shows companies are making less money. So I think there's a number of those catalysts coming online. Then we have less and less government support. And government support's been one of the themes that's driven a lot of the outsized consumption, particularly on the good side, right? We had government support for SNAP, and that's gone. That's gone as of March. Then we had government support for COVID-related healthcare costs. That just rolled off this month. And now we're seeing that student debt those paused repayments are likely to kick back online later this year. And this is during an environment where a lot of people, particularly in younger age groups, are struggling. They're, they're getting into credit card debt and buy now, pay later debt to pay grocery bills. That's a really ominous spending trend when we aren't yet in the recession and you have a large contingent of people who are borrowing at higher and higher interest rates just to make ends meet. And that's certainly going to be something that tends to bite a little bit harder when you start to see the other side of those the layoffs that could be coming and could intensify. And as Aisha said, that could lead to higher unemployment rates. That could lead to um, more defaults on debt because if people don't have an income coming in, they can't pay the interest on their debt. Right? It's not it's not as simple as like issuing new treasuries like the government gets to do once they get past the debt ceiling. Individuals have to come up with the capital or they start defaulting on debt or declaring bankruptcy or otherwise. And look, with medical costs going up from COVID, it's important to take that into the context that medical costs are the leading cause of bankruptcy in the U.S. And now you've just added some more pressure there. And then you've also told a bunch of folks who have high levels of student debt that haven't had to pay for it for years that your interest payments are going to start kicking back up. And that's going to be a big deal for folks that... 40% of which are laid on bills, two-thirds are living paycheck to paycheck. Many don't have more than $400 in their rainy day fund. So I do think that the chances of a recession are very high. I do believe we'll see one by the back half of this year uh, playing out, you know, starting. And I do think that um, it's going to be a hard landing. I think the idea of a soft landing is, look, we've only had monetary policy tightening since March of 2022. And that was when the Fed just kicked up rates by a quarter point. 
QT in, in the smaller size that it started off in started off in June of last year. The lagged and variable impacts of monetary policy can take you know, 9, 12, 18 months to hit the economy. So we're only starting to see the very, very first stages of the Fed's tightening really having an impact on this economy. What does it look like when those cumulative impacts of quantitative tightening and rate hikes really start to have a more meaningful impact on the number of debts out there that need to be refinanced in an environment where creditors aren't as eager to refinance? For example, you have office buildings with record low occupancy rates that are likely to go even lower as less businesses renew leases. And on the other side of that, you have 50% of that debt owned by banks. 75% of the banks that own it are regional banks, and some of them have a fair degree of leverage into that same debt. And that's going to be a problem both for the owners of the buildings that are trying to refinance when they say our revenues are dropping, as well as the issuers, which don't have the same amount of capacity to take on new loans on their loan book. They're trying to raise capital right now, not get deeper into these loans. So I do think there are some moving parts that push us in the direction of it being more likely that we have a recession. But i just like to remind everyone that recession is not a dirty word. It's not something we should avoid at all costs and try to forestall you know, indefinitely. It's actually an important cleansing process in the economy. It's actually a part of the economy where us as investors get generational opportunities to buy things at a discount. And that's why, you know, when you have this cleansing process, which is supposed to be a core component of free market capitalism, whatever of, left that, of that we still have left, that cleansing process is really important to take out the zombie companies, to flush some of the excesses in the economy, and to give a chance for especially newer entrants into these various markets to be able to get in, not at the ground floor, but certainly not at the top floor. Awesome. Uh, thank you for that. So it looks like we don't have very many other, uh, we don't have any other questions. Does anybody have any other questions? We'll just give it like a minute before we wrap up in case anybody wants to ask anything. Um, all I see are bot replies on the tweet. So there sure are a lot that. of bots on Twitter lately. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Good. Well, at least you know that you, uh, you're never lonely on Twitter. Popular with the bots. Got to love it. So yeah. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this. This has been a lot of fun. We're, we plan to do these spaces regularly. So look forward to a lot more uh, from Aisha and I and guests that we're going to bring in as well. But for now, I wanted to just express our heartfelt gratitude for all of your support, making these spaces happen, making Macrovisor possible. If you like the kind of macro work that we're doing, check us out. You can subscribe for free at macrovisor.com. Check out Aisha's daily breakfast bites where she gives a succinct summary of what's happened overnight before the markets open for free. Super. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. It's really been a pleasure. We, we hope to just do this on the debt ceiling, but I think we spoke a lot about macro and the markets, and it really was a fun discussion. So... Thank you everyone for taking the time and tuning in.